Welcome to Chowder and Grits, the podcast for Virginia Tech and ACC Sports. I'm Justin Cochola alongside Tim Hurth. It is Thursday, September 9th, and we're recapping a week one of Virginia Tech's huge win over number 10 North Carolina in Lane Stadium. We're going to go around the ACC, take a look at what happened there, and then we're going to preview Middle Tennessee State, the Blue Raiders coming to Blacksburg, and we're going to give you our week two picks. We're going to bet some lines, but before all that, Tim, what's going on? You know, having a good week, man. It's hard to not enjoy the week after a win against the Tar Heels in any sport, but the fact that it was football and the fact that we deflated that hype balloon a little bit uh, sure does make it all the sweeter. Yeah, I mean, it was was a crazy week. There were some um, really interesting outcomes in college football. I mean, the one that stands out the most was Montana beating Washington. You know, we had a top 10 Iowa State team really kind of fighting for their life against Northern Iowa. Uh, you know, we had some, um, you know, pretty big blowouts in there. But it's so hard to really kind of figure out where these teams are in week one. So you spend all offseason talking about them. You know, you're really kind of trying to get your best kind of gut instinct about how everybody's going to turn out. And then they either lay an egg or they look good, kind of like Virginia Tech did. And then you're not really quite ready to trust it yet. So that's really kind of what September is all about, is uh, figuring out, you know, what these teams are going to look like for the rest of the season. Absolutely, man. You, you learn a lot about these teams as you go. And luckily, it gets easier to pick some of these games and and look at trajectories after the first couple games. And certainly, getting a week underneath will will help in that regard. Uh, but you're right, man. It was a uh, it was awesome to spend all day watching college football. I think you know having fans in the stands made the game so much sweeter. And football was great last year in a time where we really needed a distraction. But seeing the fans back in the stands was uh, cathartic for sure. Yeah, there's no doubt. Lane was absolutely electric. Um, but yeah, first, you know, we're, uh, we appreciate you being here. If uh, you're new to the show, be sure to uh, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, five stars, four stars, uh, preferably five. But, uh, you know, be sure to uh, hit that like button, subscribe, and, you know, we're, uh, we're glad you're here. But, Tim, let's get into it. I mean, we talked about it a little bit with Inner Sandman. I mean, it was Oof. basically seen all over the world i mean espn australia picked it up and was like rightfully so these people rightfully in blacksburg so. are out of their freaking minds blowing um, minds in the I lands mean, of the big spiders and large snakes i mean yeah, have you ever exactly. seen some the, of those the spiders they have Oscar in australia Bradbury. yeah i mean australia is essentially just like a big piece of desert people live yeah. there I mean that's kind of. that's pretty much yeah that's geography 101 it is a big yeah, desert desert island with a lot of dangerous critters and I will tell you um and I don't know how I'm sorry I just realized I completely derailed everything we were on topic and now we are off but some of those spiders I've seen are just they make me have heart palpitations just looking at the videos yeah I mean I I don't I don't have an example to kind of compare it to but I'm sure I'm sure you're right um <laughs> And back to hokey football. <laughs> back, back to hokey football. You know, they probably felt the earth shake over in Australia. I mean, the uh, the Reddit college football Twitter handle, you know, shot out a, uh, a seismograph reading of the state of Virginia. And uh, you could visibly see when, when Enter Sandman had come on. And, I mean, from all accounts, I mean, there was a, a poor 
North Carolina fan who had to experience an actual football environment, and uh, she was mortified. If you you know you kind of know what I'm talking about with the very famous uh, review of her hokey game experience and how loud it was and obnoxious Virginia Tech fans were because they were loud and standing and screaming at a football game, which I know is they? kind of foreign territory for North Carolina fans. I mean, you know, it's pretty, uh, it's it's a pretty kind of wine and cheese crowd over there for a football game, but. I mean, just an incredible atmosphere. It was uh, it was great to see Lane back. I mean, that was honestly one of the best showings from a Lane Stadium crowd in a very long time. And you know, just want to keep seeing uh, keep seeing that heat brought. I mean, I know it's not going to be like that every week, right? But um, well, I mean, you know, get a, it was a really happy. It was a really angsty crowd, and you could kind of you knew kind of going in that this was lining up like a perfect storm type situation for an elite inner Sandman and just four quarters of noise. I mean, you had a crowd who has been away from Lane Stadium for a year, not had the best results on the field, a crappy 2020. And the only thing that would have made that 2020 less crappy, one of the few things that could have kind of quenched that crappy fire would have been sitting in Lane Stadium and hearing Metallica's Inner Sandman blasting as you're jumping and enjoying life. And they didn't have that. And you could tell just by the the passion that there was a lot of built-up energy in that crowd, and it paid off in spades for that football team. Yeah, it did. I mean, you know, we kind of buried the lead here, but Virginia Tech also won the football game, which was uh, which was great. And, I mean, the way that the offense kind of came out, I mean, Virginia Tech has looked good in opening drives. Um, I mean, that's that's not, like, super unique. They seem to do well when the plays are scripted. They kind of know what they're going to run. But, yep. I mean, they ran them to a T on that first drive. Like, it was just kind of like a out-of-the-bag touchdown drive that couldn't have been executed any better. And really, Braxton Burmeister in that first half was flawless. I mean, he was clicking. Did, did nothing wrong. Um, you know, you had the one Trey Turner drop for a touchdown, which was the only blemish on the stat line for Burmeister. But, I mean, for the most part, it was a, a flawless uh, first half offensively. Obviously, there was a couple of miscues. I mean, you had the uh, Kashawn King fumble on the second drive. But overall, the, the offense looked really good in the first half. And, um, I mean, let's talk about Burmeister. That's kind of where I want to start. And yeah. It's been bothering me with Burmeister because he reminds me of somebody, and I just haven't been able to kind of pinpoint it. But driving into the way to work this morning, it kind of hit me. He kind of reminds me of Terod Taylor, where he's a more athletic version, but he's got that same kind of look and feel. I think Terod was a little bit bigger, uh, a little bit of a better passer, but he's definitely the most... um, Tyrod version of a quarterback we've had since Tyrod was there. Um, and just kind of thinking about the way that he played and the way that he kind of makes decisions to run. And, you know, Tyrod was a very um, kind of a patient runner. He wasn't somebody who was going to just, you know, get panicked and run out of the pocket and, um, you know, be more of a Jordan Travis type of quarterback um, who Ooh. looked like a disaster against Notre Dame. Yes, that's not a label um, you want to throw on anybody. That's that's rough talking, man. But I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you, but that's what he kind of reminds me of. And um, I mean, honestly, and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. 
but he's probably the most athletic quarterback we've had since Vic, um, just from uh, the way that he can get out of the pocket. And we haven't seen him in the open field yet, and I'm saying the ceiling is there. I'm not I'm not comparing him to Vic. I'm not comparing him to, uh, to Taylor yet. But, you know, from what I saw in the first game, I mean, there's a couple of correctable issues there. I mean, I, I you know, I'm not a college quarterback. I didn't play quarterback in high school, but I'd have to imagine it's a lot like golf where if you haven't played in a while, you know, that short game might be a little rusty. And so those little kind of dump-off passes under unique game pressure kind of might get away from you a little bit. And so I think that's something that you might want to see from uh, Burmeister as he kind of progresses through the next couple of weeks in the season is to be uh, a little bit more efficient on those checkdowns. But overall, I mean, I thought uh, I thought Burmeister played great. Yeah, he did. And, you know, I told you this, you know, in the text during the game, but one of the things that impressed me was his ability to keep his eyes downfield when scrambling and kind of keeping plays alive versus just running every time plays broke down. And I think that's so crucial in the college game to be able to, you know, hit your 10-yard uh, kind of wide receiver who's floating off in no man's land when the play breaks down uh, to keep a play alive instead of just putting blinders on and, and taking it up and trying to make something out of nothing. Because uh, that's a trap that a lot of those athletic guys can find themselves in. You know, a lot of the issues that I saw with him in his first game with Braxton was field vision. Uh, there were a couple of plays where guys were just running wide open and he missed them. Again, correctable, um, but not the easiest thing to correct. You know, that's not one of those things that you can just say, okay, now open your eyes and see it. It's just going to take some some time and some film study to get that right. Um but that that those in in the issues with you know some passes that he airmailed that he really really should not be airmailing uh, as a power five college quarterback uh, you know namely uh, you know there was one down the uh, left side towards the uh, in the second half to extend a drive that would have been crucial that he sailed probably five to ten yards over the receiver's head um, that that was disappointing but not unexpected because of the rust all in all I thought it was a really good performance from him. Um, you know, his, the plays he made with his feet were great. You could see the athleticism flash, the passing eyes downfield, pretty good. Um, it, it, it's one of those things where there's stuff to work on, but again, you can see, you can see the quarterback that's in there. And if we, if we're able to work with him and get him where he needs to be, he could be one of the better quarterbacks in the ACC. Now, are we there yet? No, no, we're not there yet. But again, saw a lot of glimpses and a lot of stuff to make you real excited uh, to see Braxton continue his, his journey and continue to grow. Yeah, and I think with uh, with Burmeister, I mean, like you said, he showed a lot of patience as a runner. Um, I thought his arm looked strong. You know, yeah. he's, he's dealt yeah. with some shoulder injuries, but his shoulder, I mean, he was putting some heat on those passes. I mean, the one that comes to mind is the uh, the James Mitchell touchdown catch. Um, the way he stepped up in the pocket on third down after what should have been a touchdown two plays previously, that was a big-time play in the game. Um, whether or not he was throwing to Mitchell or not, like nobody really knows if that was to Robinson or Mitchell, but either way, it was a touchdown. Um, and then, I mean, a couple of throws down the field were just on the money. The the pass to Turner down the sideline, the pass to Robinson at, uh, towards the end of the game, that, you know, a half-foot uh, close to being a touchdown. I mean, those those balls were just dimes, and so I felt yeah, it was it's the best I felt watching Burmeister throw the football 
at any point in his tech career. I was never like super. Um, I was never super high. I wasn't a buyer of his kind of arm strength last year. Um, I felt like it was a liability at times. That his arm never looked super strong. He seemed to have a hard time getting the ball down the field. And I mean, this week or last week, I should say, it, it felt a little more effortless and. Um, it just looked a lot more fluid than it has previously. So that kind of gives me hope heading into the season that, you know, he is 100% healthy. Again, he's had more time to develop. He hasn't had the uh, COVID issues to deal with. And, I mean, um, you know, still a long way to go. Don't want to overreact to week, week one, but he definitely uh, passed the eye test uh, there. If we want to jump over to running backs, you know, we really started with kind of a three-back rotation. Um, it quickly turned into a two-back rotation after Gashawn King uh, fumbled basically on the 10-yard line uh, in the red zone, which uh, could have been a, a big issue. It, it turned out to not uh, haunt the Hokies, but came close. Um, all in all, I mean, I thought Jalen Holston looked pretty good. I think he's going to be the bell cow of this offense, the guy who really kind of lives between the tackles, which isn't far from what we expected. I finished with 13 carries for 64 yards. It was a pretty quiet 13 carries, uh, but fairly efficient. I think Blackshear is a guy who, you know, he and Holston are really going to split time, share snaps, share the backfield at times. I think Blackshear will probably end up out-touching the ball um, compared to Holston just because of his usage in the passing game. And, I mean, I thought he looked really well. It was, again, for Blackshear, I thought the best he's looked in a Hokie uniform. Running the ball, I mean, not much to to really talk about there. 11 carries for 16 yards. A lot of his rushes were more lateral, and North Carolina just seemed to blow that up uh, whenever he got the ball. But all in all, I mean, I thought it was a pretty solid game from the backs. Um, and it really feels like to me, Tim, that the offensive identity of this team is going to be let's control the clock, let's run an efficient offense, you know, we'll do what we can through the air, but they're really going to be focused on running the football, short screen passes, bubble screens, things like that, maybe some QB draws and some movement in there with um, with Burmeister. But it worked this week, and the reason it worked so well is because of that defense. And if your defense can keep the offense off the field and you can be efficient offensively, I mean, it's a pretty good recipe to keep uh, keep cooking up. Yeah, no, I, I, and I like that identity with this team, given the strength of the offensive line. I think that suits, I would just hope, against lesser talented defenses um, and maybe teams that aren't quite as dangerous, even though they didn't look at on offense, that you would open that up. It, it's sort of like in soccer when you uh, play a packed back line and you kind of try to control the game by letting the other team uh you know, go out and try to go guns blazing while you sit back and, and soak up some pressure and, and, and manage games that way. I, I will say that game plan makes sense. But given our inability to consistently have drives that get more than one or two first downs for large periods of the game, that does concern me if that's the route we're going to go. Um, it didn't hurt us, as you said, Obviously, the the defense played it, you know the lights out, and we'll talk about that. But this team has a, a tendency to go three and out multiple times in a row in critical moments in critical time periods during the game, and that is was still present 
again, if we had lost, we would have been raising a stink about it. But it is something that has to get addressed. And I don't know if that's an inability to make proper adjustments, if that's the defense adjusting to us and our coaches not making the right decisions there, or if it's more disturbingly a mentality issue where, and I'm sure you were going to bring this up, but I'll go ahead and bring it up now. I thought the way we closed out that first half was one of the most cowardly ways to coach a football game I'd ever seen. You had a completely gassed, gassed UNC defense who had been on the field the entire first half, um, largely without a break. You got, I think, two timeouts, a minute 30 with the ball, I think maybe on the 30-yard line or thereabouts. Minute 40, and, yeah. And you sit on it. Now, yeah. it's a win. Nobody wants to hear a lot of complaining, but I'm going to go ahead and do it for them. That was pathetic. That you, This team needs that killer mentality. It's been missing for years. And doing things like that tells me that you're scared when you have no reason to be. So I don't know what it's going to take to get that mentality out of the team because I don't want you know, that tendency, that afraid kind of uh, conservative mentality to rub off on the team because that team in that scenario should be saying, okay, let's go put another three or seven on the board. Um, and you know everybody in that team would want to do that. Obviously, those decisions are coming from the coaching staff. But th- that was just baffling. I mean, baffling. And people are going to say I'm making too big of a deal of it. I'm not. Um, this is something well, that's happened for uh, many, many, many times in Fuente's right. tenure, for well, sure. That's why and it wasn't baffling to me because it, it was kind of on cue for this coaching staff. Like for whatever right. reason, if they get the ball near midfield with two minutes or less, they're not going to go for it. And I, right, I just, but it's crazy. I, I understand it if you're struggling, but like you said, like <laughs> they had, they had all the momentum. They had a gas defensive unit. They're often moving the ball at will. That half. It's like, why not take it, it? If anything, just take one shot. On first right. Down. And I'm not saying and go out there and run four work, verts. You know what I mean? And, and throw the ball 70 yards down the field in, in one heave. I'm, I'm just saying, try to get a first down and see where that goes. But it, it, so many times in those situations, we, we run it right up the middle. Okay. We gain, let's call it a yard. Nope. Nope. Not going to do it. Second and long, long. Now we're scared. And, and I'm sorry. That's just not the right mentality to coach. Um, in that scenario. Now, go to the opposite side. If it had been UNC, uh, you know, we're in a tie game with UNC, or UNC's got a real well-rested defense and our offense hasn't been out on the field much, sure, don't try to force anything. But in a scenario like that where basically you could have put the game to bed because of how bad UNC's offense was playing and you didn't even give it a shot, bothers the heck out of me. And, you know, I don't want to sound too negative, but that's because we've got such a body of work at this point, that's just to me, to me, that's inexcusable at this point to be talking about it yet again. And we saw that instead of getting a chance to build momentum, Justin, what happened on our first four possessions after the second half? I think it was close to four, three and outs. Yeah. Because the momentum is completely gone. Execution based. Yeah. I mean, part of it with some of the missed check downs and things like that. So I mean, Part I felt like there was opportunities to move the ball there, but it just didn't happen for whatever reason. So right, it's not. And, and it, to me, it's just it's not like we talk we about had, those. We we talk about those three and outs like all the time. Like three runs up the middle. It was horrible play calling. I, I thought the play calling was, for the most part, pretty 
pretty good. Play, I got no, um, I got no problems on the play calling outside of those uh, drives right. after the second half. I mean, I, I did right. think we were far too conservative. I would have liked to to us to at least try to stretch the field a little bit. Some of those blown plays you talked about were still checkdowns. Um, we're still uh, secondary, third reads. I mean, if you look at the plays, and, and I went back and watched it, the offense we were running in the first half, far toned down from a tempo standpoint, from everything going into that third quarter. And I'm not saying rush the tempo in order to not bleed the clock, but sometimes your offensive momentum is based on tempo. And if you can't recreate your offensive success when you slow tempo down, guess what you shouldn't do? That's the point I'm making, is that we too many times change what we're trying to do on offense just a little bit, and the wheels come off. So in order for this program to have success this year, and this is a key, is going to be to change that mentality. If you got the foot on somebody's neck, keep stomping, and capitalize on the ability to maintain offensive momentum throughout an entire game. Because to me, I think that's one of the biggest shortcomings. And I promise that's the last bit of uh, complaining I'm going to do on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always good to have a little bit more aggressiveness. And, you know, I can guarantee you had North Carolina been at the 30 with a minute 40 to go, they wouldn't have sat on the football. So I think well, that's, that's just... The, that's um, the sad thing. I don't think, I don't think any other coach in, in college would unless you're running a triple option. I really don't. Yeah. Um, so that, that and I'm, so I'm hopeful that, that's that going to be mentioned, like right? Last season. Right. And, and three seasons prior and four seasons prior. I mean, this has been a long, a long running theme with this coaching staff. And at this point, you need to not be scared of success. That's, that's all I'll say. So defensively, you know, I think the thing that, you know, before we get into how the team performed, you know, Nasir Peoples got the start. He played all but two snaps over uh, Devin Hunter. So it sounds like that Peoples is going to be the starter back there at safety along with uh, Keonta Jenkins. Um, it sounds like the, the coaching staff really likes him better in coverage and not super surprising to me based on how we were hearing, you know, Hunter talked about from a play perspective where, you know, we just have to get him there on the field. That's never what you want to hear. I mean, it sounds like they, they'll want to get him kind of involved a little bit more than that, but just kind of something to watch going forward. I thought the uh, defensive line, and I mean the secondary, just balled out. I mean, the defensive line specifically was the pleasant surprise of this game. I'm going to have oh. to get used to the numbers. The, the Narelle Pollard wearing number three was really tripping me out. I was like, I, kinda love I, it, I didn't though. know who it was for the first like ten <laughs> plays. I'm like, who is wearing number three? Because that guy, I, yeah, is wreaking havoc for one. But I can't figure out who it is. It's not Caleb Farley. Who is it? And boom, it's Narelle Pollard. So he uh, he had a really good game. I mean, Mario Kendricks had a good game. Jordan Williams had a good game. Let's let's you know. Let's enjoy Amari Barno in a Virginia Tech uniform oh, because that guy is going God to be almighty. next year. He is an absolute freak show on the football field. And, I mean, he he's everywhere. He's in the backfield. He's in, you know, he's playing spy. He's spying Sam Howell. I mean, the guy, he, he does it all. I mean, he really does kind of set the tone for this defense overall. He's, to me, by far the best player on this defense. And, I mean... I think if you go back to the offensive line as a whole, you look at it for UNC, 
it's not going to be one of the best offensive lines there, but it is kind of one of the better teams. It did have a really good time moving the ball last year. They do return a lot of guys, and for the most part, I mean, Tech just lived in the backfield. They had six sacks on the day on 15.4% of Sam Howell's dropbacks, which was the highest mark in the ACC and the 13th highest mark in the country. That's a little PFF stat for you. Now, if you compare that to last year, Tech's rate averaged out at 8.5%, so almost double the amount of time spent in the backfield in week one on Sam Howell, which is what we alluded to kind of coming into this game is they had to make Sam Howell comfortable and then uncomfortable. And then on top of that, he had nowhere to throw the ball. I mean, he threw three picks, two in the fourth quarter, his first ever interception thrown in the fourth quarter. He threw two of them. And he also fumbled it when, you know, Amari Barnett was breathing down his neck and went out of bounds. But the secondary ranked top 10, the Virginia Tech secondary, ranked top 10 in passes thrown to the outside. UNC only 3 for 10 on the night, averaged 2.4 yards per attempt. All of their offensive success came on little bubble screens that averaged out to be about 8.8 yards per play. And one of those obviously went for the touchdown to Josh Downs, which he took 37 yards to the house. So pretty flawless performance overall by Virginia Tech. I mean, I expected the secondary to be really good because I just felt like we were turning, returning a ton of talent. And I think we saw that the Virginia Tech secondary far outclassed the new receiving core of North Carolina, who, for whatever reason, was so highly touted coming into the season. Like, you know, we've got the guys to replace Diami Brown and Daz Newsom and blah, 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 blah. The only dude that I saw on the field outside of Sam Howell on the UNC offense was Josh Downs. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, and, you know, the thing that gets me – is a lot of folks, myself included, were obviously down on that defense last year, and and they just had a rough go at it with COVID. We all know the backstory there. Justin Hamilton just somehow, and I don't know if he's got some sort of magic spell that he's able to rewind time or what happened, but that was vintage Hokies swarming defense, relentless pressure. And the thing that I thought really stood out to me is the pressure was getting through rushing three or four guys a lot of times. I mean, we were dropping back into coverage at times, and the defensive line was barely held up by UNC's offensive line. Um, That's super, super impressive, and I just can't say enough about how good that defense looked against a team that is no slouch on offense, obviously. Um, I'm with you. I'm kind of perplexed as to how people were projecting their offense to be you know, improved in some cases. At the very least, most people were anticipating they'd maintain the same level of play as last year, and that's still insanity to me when you consider what they lost. Still a really, really good offensive team, and I just can't. Every position group, linebackers, safeties, cornerbacks, defensive line, completely balled out. I mean, we're talking about the defense as a whole here. You've touched on the defensive line. That was absolutely stunning in their ability to pressure the quarterback. But how about those corners, man? I mean, they... Did did Coffrey Brown even play? I, I really don't know. That was one of the guys highlighted before the game as, well, as somebody to play, watch for. He, he didn't do anything. And he was injured but available. They said he was probably going to play. And he, he's really the guy that kind of can take the top off the defense. But he's had issues at North Carolina, staying on the field, staying out of trouble uh, with injuries. So he wasn't available. 
the best ability is availability. He wasn't there for that. And, uh, I mean, it showed. Like, there just wasn't a ton of talent on the field offensively for North Carolina. I mean, no, no. Josh Downs was only open when you immediately threw it to him off the line of scrimmage, and he's just a slippery player. He's very athletic. So they did everything that they could to get him the ball, and he had eight catches, which, you know, the next closest guy had three with Emory Simmons. So, I mean – you have to you have to give the credit to the Virginia Tech secondary. I mean, every single replay they were showing, Sam Howell had nowhere to go with the football, nowhere. whether it was whether he was under pressure, whether he wasn't, and it was man to man defense. And I mean, it was lockdown. It was vintage, man. It was completely it was. vintage. It was really just a vintage overall Virginia Tech performance. <laughs> it really top ball, to bottom. Control the clock. <laughs> dominant yep. defense. I That's felt like it. I was watching like the 2002 Virginia Tech Hokies. And seeing those DBs on islands make plays brought back so many fond memories. And shout out to whoever on the coaching staff did the talent eval on, eval on Dorian Strong. Because my word, can that kid play football? Um, his defense of the vertical route uh, where he had just tipped it out of the hands of the UNC receiver going full bore down the sidelines in the end zone was a beautiful, a beautiful play. And I don't, I don't mean to just shout out Dorian Strong. I mean, Waller. Good Lord, what a resurgence from him. Uh, but that was just so, so good to see. And big ups to the entire coaching staff. Ryan Smith, I think, has been doing fantastic work um, with defensive backs. And Justin Hamilton, the pressures he brought seemed to be at the right time. He had everybody in that defense where they needed to be. Schematically, they looked, they, they looked like they knew exactly where they wanted to be and what they needed to do or the clear objective, and they freaking nailed it. Yeah, I mean, six sacks, nine tackles for a loss, five pass deflections, four QB hurries, three interceptions, a forced fumble. Like, I mean, the only thing they didn't do was score a touchdown. And, I right. mean, if you compare to, you know, what North Carolina did from a defensive standpoint, one sack – Four tackles for loss, three QB hurries, one pass deflection. Yep. So, I mean, yep. just really outclassed on both sides of the ball. And, uh, I mean, you couldn't ask for more in a week one game against the top ten opponent at home. Virginia Tech was, you know, a road dog. Hadn't been getting a lot of hype. You know, I think they were ranked somewhere around 40th or received 40th most votes for the AP poll coming into this game. And all you heard about was Virginia Tech is 1-11 against top 10 teams at Lane Stadium since 2009 or whatever the year was. And the way that I look at it now is it's your 1-0 since 2021. You've turned the page. You took care of business. And you just got to kind of keep playing and keep going at it. So, I mean, from a Justin Fuente standpoint, from kind of where he's at right now and what this season means, there's kind of a couple of check boxes that he needs need, needed to check this season. One was starting off strong with the win at North Carolina. That was really going to set the tone for kind of how the fan base was going to feel about him. Right. That was a big one. He's now four and one all time against North Carolina. Virginia Tech is fourteen and four against Carolina since joining the ACC. Um, so, kind of my viewpoint is if you think it's going to be a rivalry, you need to win. Closer to maybe 50% of the games, UNC is kind of a far way off from, from that point. But um, the next thing for Fuente is, and we'll get into the, the preview in a little bit, is to turn the page and take care yep. of your 
out-of-conference cupcakes like you're supposed to take care of them. I mean, that's that's the check mark for next week. So, But before we get into that, Tim, anything else to kind of wrap up uh, week one for the Hokies? Yeah. Um, you know, just one other observation that I thought was great to see is the swagger was back on defense. It has been missing for a while. And to see the team play so confidently with such passion and fight and and all I hate to use the word swagger, but there's there's no really other word to describe what I'm trying to get across here. But that is so much different than we've seen in years past. So shouts to everybody involved with that from the coaching staff to the players. What a turnaround. Absolutely remarkable. And, you know, hopefully this puts enough wind in our sails to keep playing with that same sort of attitude as we go on throughout the rest of the schedule. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. So big week this week. But first, let's go around the ACC in week one. You know, really, it was a pretty bad week one overall for uh, the ACC as a whole. You know, obviously, it came into the season with three ranked teams, UNC, Miami, Clemson. They all lost. You know, I don't think anybody should be overly surprised about the Miami-Alabama outcome. That's just what Bama does. They reload. We kind of went over everybody who they were replacing from last season, and, you know, it looked like that team had played together for three years. You give Nick Saban an entire offseason to prepare, he's basically unbeatable. So for Miami, I'm not sure what we really learned, if we learned anything, but we'll know uh, we'll know more after their Week 2 matchup against um, App State. Clemson? They're still going to be good. You know, everybody's yeah. talking about, hey, can Clemson still make the playoff? Is Clemson overrated? Is Clemson, you know, is this it? Is this the beginning of the end? No. No, they're still going to win probably 10 games. Um, but as we've stated, this could be the year that if you're going to beat Clemson in the ACC, this could be the year, especially if you're a team like NC State. So I still think they're going to be in that 10-game range, but their schedule is soft. The offense will get better. And unfortunately for Clemson, they went up against one of the best defenses, if not the best defense in the country. So, I mean, neither team scored an offensive touchdown in that game. It was a interception return for a touchdown. I think the biggest concern, if you're Clemson, I mean, DJU looked a little kind of off his game. Looked like he was a one-read quarterback. He had tons of space to run at times and opted to throw so there were some big time missed opportunities from him which I think he'll improve on the big concern for me was that Clemson offensive line when it came to the rush only two yards rushing for the entire game and that offensive line got dominated they got worked yeah they did and and like you said the, the most shocking thing to me was DJU and how he looked um just didn't look confident his ball placement was terrible, um, missing throws to open receivers. And, and there were Clemson receivers getting open, um, and he he was just airmailing it. There, there wasn't a lot of touch on the balls that he threw. Um, definitely not time to hit the panic button against a team like Georgia, but it's, it's not going to be easy uh, to replace what Clemson had to replace. And, uh, yeah, you would have liked to see a, a better performance on offense from them. Um, even going up against Georgia, but some things that are a little bit alarming uh, down in Death Valley for sure. Yeah, and I mean they didn't they didn't run the ball great last year either. If we're being honest, no. and I mean the way that you use ETN, he's he was really used more as a receiver last year. But right, um, definitely some things to work out there for Clemson. Uh, Duke, 
Huge night from uh, Mateo Durant, but they go down to Charlotte, at Charlotte. First ever win over a Power 5 for the uh, for the 49ers, so that crowd was uh, going wild. It was a pretty nice little crowd there in Charlotte. I don't know how many people the stadium holds, but it was full. Um, so happy for those guys, sad for Duke. Georgia Tech, I mean, that's probably the most embarrassing loss of the weekend, if yeah. I'm picking embarrassing losses. I mean... Northern Illinois is a bottom feeder FBS program right now. Yep. You know, they're just awful. And I know you lost Jeff Sims in the game to an injury late, but you can't lose to Northern Illinois, especially when you're in year three of the Jeff Collins era when you've got a very, very difficult schedule. You had to beat Northern Illinois, and they didn't. I don't know what that means for... Them going forward, I'm not really sure of Jeff Sims' injury status at the moment. I don't think he's going to be out long, but they go into that game an 18-point favorite and come out a loser. And, uh, yeah, I'm a little concerned for Georgia Tech. Don't want to overreact too much in Week 1, but that was just one where you kind of scratch your head and you're like, how does this happen? Yeah, that that's a bad one. And that's, given the talent differential on those teams, should never happen. Regardless of injury, even though the injury to Sims was largely irrelevant um, because he played most of the game, that was embarrassing in, in the ultimate form of irony, uh, that Georgia Tech football program not generating a lot of buzz right now. Mm, yeah, that was a good one. Thanks, on man. the brighter side, Florida State, I mean, they lost, but this is kind of yeah. where we're at in the ACC right now. Florida State lost, <laughs> but... Moral victories. <laughs> They, awesome. they showed more fight than I think we had seen from an FSU team in a long time. Oh, yeah. So that was kind of my takeaway. There there were kind of a couple of really sketchy decisions from Mike Norvell. Um, I have to question why Mackenzie Milton didn't start the game. I, I sit there and I watch Jordan Travis play quarterback, and I grow increasingly frustrated as the game wears on. He's a good athlete, but he has horrible pocket presence he is constantly scared out of the pocket he runs way too far backwards and he is constantly putting his team in bad bad field position issues i mean he's just a reckless quarterback he's not even that good of a thrower and the athleticism is actually hurting them i feel like more than it's helping them at this point and so for him to come out of the game for losing his helmet and then to not go back in was a uh, interesting turn of events when kind of Milton goes in and, and really kind of got Florida State back into the game. I mean, it was 38-20. It looked like that game, you know, Florida State was going to – they fought for about, what, two and a half, three quarters, and that was going to be it. But then Milton charges them back. They get to overtime. They end up losing. But for the most part, I think you had to be happy with – the Florida State, um, the way that they played, especially towards the end where they kind of got back into it. You know, if you look over at Notre Dame, you know, Jack Cohn had a huge day, like looked really good. Yeah. But my question is, is that FSU's defense is just really bad? Is it good? There was a lot more throwing out of Jack Cohn than I anticipated. I thought I was kind of surprised Notre Dame didn't run the ball more, to be honest. I thought Michael Mayer had – you know, some big plays at tight end, but he also had some really big drops. But um, 
I think Brian Kelly summed it up there at the end of the game. He wasn't so happy with the execution. Um, he felt like his team should be executed um, were his post-game comments, which uh, were a little cringeworthy. But Notre Dame yeah. survives and moves on. But what were your thoughts about this one? Same as you. Um, you know, I thought the fight that we saw from the Knowles team was a reflection of the change in culture that coaching staff is going for. And, you know, I, look, I, I can't be too harsh on uh, Travis in regards to his flightiness in the pocket because if I had played a season behind that Florida State O-line, I think I would be, have the same sort of mental issues that he has. Um, because they couldn't really maintain a pocket for, what, three years now. So I kind of get that. Um, but it's, it's clear to me uh, when Milton came in that Milton is the quarterback uh, in Tallahassee. And it'll be interesting to see how, how, how well that defense can play moving forward because, like you, I, I didn't expect Cone to play as well as he did. And I'm not so sure if that's an indictment on Florida State or a kudos to Cone type deal. Probably a mixture of both. But the one thing we can say for sure is I, I think the, the culture change is, is in progress and doing pretty well. So another little footnote here. Uh, Syracuse got the win. Hey so big win for the Orange. Uh, wasn't exactly a uh, big-time opponent, but either way, dominant performance, 29-9. Uh, they were a two-and-a-half-point favorite, but a, uh, a good win for the Orange to start the season. And then... You know, the Boston Colleges, Pitts, UVA, you know, they were playing some uh, lower-level FCS opponents, so they uh, they all took care of business. But that's it for Week 1 in the ACC. Definitely some room for improvement, um, but I think um, with Virginia Tech's win over North Carolina, Coastal Chaos is primed and, and ready for another season, and we'll see what happens with Clemson. I mean... Like I said, I think Clemson's going to be fine at the end of the day. There's no reason to hit the panic button right now, but definitely some uh, some things to work out. And they get NC State in a week or two, maybe next week, week three. Um, that's going to be an interesting game. So that's that's yeah. one that I've got circled. Yep, it's uh, it's going to be a big one. And I, I think it's week four or five that they're facing Clemson. Okay. Um, but e- it's either in way, I know that. it is. It, it is the very end, I believe. Um it's a big one for for both programs, none bigger than you know. Obviously, it is for NC State, uh, but yeah, worth keeping an eye on Clemson. But as long as Brent Venables is still the defensive coordinator, I think they can only have you know so bad of a season. Um, I, I think you know what you're going to get out of them. Baseline on defense is going to be enough to keep you in virtually every game you play. So, um, not hitting the panic button, but at the same time, I expected DJU and that offense to look better. All right, well, let's jump over to the uh, Middle Tennessee State preview here. So their head coach, Rick Stockstill, he's been there since 2006. You know, so he's been there for a long time, has built a fairly solid program until recently. I mean, if you go back and look at 2012 to 2018, they only had one season at 500, and the rest they had seven or eight wins a year. So, um he had built up a pretty solid program there. They started to slip a bit. If you go back to Fuente's days at Memphis, he actually faced Middle Tennessee three times and had a 1-2 and two record against the Blue Raiders. That's not super surprising considering the uh, the program that Fuente turned around there. Memphis was in dire straits, but um, just a little tidbit there. Since 2019, Middle Tennessee is 7-14. and 
They were 3-6 and six last season. They had four losses of more than 30 points. And defensively, they ranked 117th and 19th and 114th last season. So they've been struggling. Uh, they do have some experience coming back. They return about 19 starters. They brought in some uh, FBS transfers. You know, Bailey Hockman, most notable, the quarterback from NC State that we'll talk about here in a second. And they were projected to finish somewhere around that 5-7 to seven mark in, uh, in Conference USA. So that's a little bit of, uh, of background on the Blue Raiders. If we look at last week, they went up against Monmouth, who's an FCS opponent. They ended up winning that game 50-15. to 15. And Bailey Hockman played well. I mean, again, he came from NC State. He was 17 of 22 for 215 and three touchdowns. You know, last year he opened the season as NC State starter. NC State opened the year, or Virginia Tech opened the year against NC State. I think it was NC State's first game of the year as well. Um, and Hopman went 7 for 16 for 82 yards and two picks and was benched in the game for Devin Leary, who ended up taking over the starting job. And Hockman took it back over once Leary got a injury and was out for the season. So to finish up last season, he was 64% completion percentage, 2,000 yards passing, 13 touchdowns, 11 picks. So an okay season for Hockman overall. Um, definitely somebody the Hokies will have to, you know, kind of worry about, but I think at the end of the day they should be fine. Middle Tennessee uses a running back by committee type of thing. There's really no one guy that they uh, kind of give the ball to. Last week they had 112 yards rushing on 33 attempts. I put them about 360 total yards. Uh, the defense did force four turnovers, three fumble recoveries, one interception. The interception was returned for a touchdown, and they actually scored in all three phases of the game, offense, defense, and special teams, which was the first time they had done that since 2014. So... You know, Monmouth, again, FCS opponent. The one thing that really jumped off the page to me with Monmouth was what Monmouth did against the Middle Tennessee State offensive line, which was one sack, which is nothing to write home about, but had 11 tackles for loss, three pass deflections, and an additional QB hurry. So, you know, I think uh, I think there's definitely some opportunity there to, to get after the quarterback if you're uh, – if you're Virginia Tech, and you know the the last thing I had here on uh, Middle Tennessee before we get into the keys to the game, Tim, they're actually going to take a bus from Murfreesboro all the way over to the Blacksburg Roanoke area, wherever they're bussing to. So, seven hour bus ride. I don't. I mean, that seems like a long bus trip to me. I've got to be questioning why they're not flying. Yeah, no, it's going to be uncomfortable at the very least. I mean, riding seven hours in a car is bad enough, um, but doing it in a bus, probably not ideal. But, uh, you know, logistically, if that's what works out best, uh, more power to them. I guess. Yeah, so one other thing is, you know, this was a home and away scheduled series. Virginia Tech was scheduled to go to Murfreesboro last year um, before the um, before the COVID altered before COVID altered the schedule, so I don't believe that's going to be made up. So Middle Tennessee is stuck going to Blacksburg without Blacksburg coming to them. But, Tim, any anything else you want to hit on before we jump into the keys of the game with the uh, Blue Raiders? No, I'll hold off when we get into keys. Uh, you know, obviously the big overarching theme of it is no matter how bad or average an opponent may be, 
after a big win, we are all on pens and needles. So we've got to shake that fear. And the only way to do that is to go out there and get a big old W. Yeah. So really, Tim, my first key to the game is to be a goldfish. Yeah. So I'm going to steal that philosophy away from the great FCS championship winning head coach, Ted Lasso. <laughs> you got to forget about last week. That's right. And you know, it's, it's cliche to talk about, but it was an emotional game. A lot of energy in the stands. You know, you came out, you were victorious, but at the end of the day, that has nothing to do with this week. So you've had a week of everybody telling you how great you are. Congratulations. We love you. You know, Virginia Tech's doing this. You're ranked now. You basically went from 40th up to 21 in the AP poll. You're the second highest ranked team in the ACC. People have you as a number two team in the ACC power rankings. It's week two. It all means nothing. So big part about football, really any sport, is kind of that mental ability, that mental maturity to kind of just turn the page, forget about last week, not worry about next week, and to focus on kind of the task at hand. So I think that is, for me, the top key in the game. If you look at Virginia Tech historically, you know, I'm not really here to talk about the past, but if we were to, since 2013, they're 3-5 and five the week after beating a top 25 team. That obviously dates back to the, to the Beamer era, and it's obviously not this football team, but just something to be aware of. And so coming out, playing efficient, high level, It'll show us kind of where the maturity is at for this football team right now. And if the defense comes out flat or struggles to get MTSU off the field, you know, or if the offense is dull, mistake prone, whatever, I mean, there could be some cause for concern in that. But really, you know, if you look at the type of opponent that Middle Tennessee is and the type of program that Virginia Tech is striving to be, the rule number one in Power 5 football, beat your clunkers. Rule number two, look good doing it. Rule number three, repeat rules one and two multiple times per season. And rule number four and five is last week and next week don't matter. And I made these rules up, but I'd imagine they're pretty accurate. Yeah, no, it sounds like a good set of five rules to me. Um, you know, this is this is and has been an issue for tech for a while. And, uh, you know, we, we can't live in the past and have that affect, you know, the team on game day, but at the same time, uh, there needs to be some emphasis put on it and preparation to say everybody, you know, be, you know, mind your P's and Q's just because Metal Tennessee State doesn't look great on paper doesn't mean they're not going to give you a heck of a fight and we'll need to be focused. Key number two, bring the heat. Talking about heat. the defensive line, you know, dominated Friday night, but again, talking about that consistency, can they do it again? Was that a once-in-a-season once type of performance, or is that going to be something that we should expect to see time and time again? I don't think we're going to see the amount of blitzing that we probably saw against North Carolina. I'm not sure they're going to need to do that, but they're going up against a very weak offensive line, a very vulnerable offensive line, a pocket passer, somebody who's not going to be able to beat you with their legs. They do have some speed on the outside of the receiving core. They don't have any dynamite player. If they can control the line of scrimmage, it's going to be a very, very long day for this Middle Tennessee offense. And, you know, a guy like Amari Barno, I think he's somebody who 
you're not going to need to send back there as a spy. He, Bailey Hockman doesn't have the rushing ability that a Sam Howell has, so it'll be interesting to see how they utilize him, if they do send him more, if they maybe use him as more of a linebacker. But all in all, I'm very interested to see how this defensive line performs in back-to-back weeks. Because if they can yeah. replicate the performance from last week, I'm going to feel much better heading into week three against West Virginia. Yeah, and this is one of those when you have mismatched teams, especially when you're playing a team that's not in the Power Five, typically this is where you see Power Five teams really have an advantage is in the trenches. So I do expect uh, Tech to be able to generate a, a quite a bit of pressure from a three- to four-man rush. Although I will say when it comes to pocket passers, I do like to blitz them. Um, I think that's an effective way to limit a pocket passer's ability to get comfortable. I think you run the risk of allowing a, a pocket passer to get comfortable if you're not applying you know, the right kind of pressure and hitting them with uh, some blitzes they're not used to seeing as much, um, especially when you have the athletes on the edge that Tech does. So I, I do hope that we try to make a, a Bailey Hockman a little uncomfortable because he is a pocket passer, but he's not the kind of pocket passer that will pick you apart. Um, so I, I think the best way to, to deal with him would be to make him you know, uncomfortable, get him out of the pocket where he doesn't want to be and, and just make his life a living hell for three and a half hours. Um, so I, I think you're spot on there in that key. Uh, defensive line play is going to be absolutely uh, important. Uh, and, and given the apparent mismatches of the defensive line to their offensive line, uh, I hope that's something that we will see uh, born in fruit in the stat line when it's all said and done. Third and final key to the game for me, grounded pound. Yes, sir. I don't know if we see uh, every play in the playbook against a team like Middle Tennessee State, but I have a feeling the offensive game plan is going to be focused around the run, keeping the tempo, controlling the clock. You know, it appears to me that's what the coaches want to do on offense. So it'll be interesting to see how much they kind of open it up through the air. You know, we didn't get a ton of guys involved in the offense through in the receiving court last week. You know, Robinson only ended up with one catch for two yards. Turner was pretty active. James Mitchell had a few catches. Um, And outside of that, it was pretty much Blackshear. So I do think the rushing game will be kind of the key focus. I want to see Kishon King get back out there, get some reps, get more comfortable holding on to the football. Uh, It'd be good to see some other guys, too, as well as, like, Marco Lee. I'd love to see him out there. Marco Lee, yep. but, uh, you know, I, I'd have a feeling that he'd come in and maybe some of the other guys, hopefully in the second half when um, Virginia Tech should, keyword being should, have the game under control. But I think the run in this kind of game can really open it up. I want to see Burmeister take some shots downfield. You know, I don't necessarily want to see Burmeister running wild in this game. Um, but if he does, you know, I'm all for it. But, um, you know... I'd also love to see a guy like Jaden Payute or Dwayne Lofton get in there and either if it's in the run game or a jet sweep or, you know, they get a big play opportunity, you know, through the play action when we've been having success through the run, just break off a big play. I think that'd be pretty exciting to see. Yeah, I, th- I think so too. This this game gives you the opportunity to really get some guys, some good game action, get some reps in, um, and, and hopefully we're in a position to be able to do that in the second half. Uh, but you're spot on. Uh, you know, the offensive line looked great opening up holes in the run game against UNC, uh, and they should feast against this Middle Tennessee State uh, defensive line and get a steady dose of, of tailbacks 
you know, hopefully King is able to hold on to the football and get some more confidence, and this would be a great game to, to work that in. And like you, man, I want to see the big boy Marco Lee take some carries. Yeah, I also have this just I have this feeling, you know, Jalen Stroman, an incredible photo came out of the game. I think it was Tech Sideline that had it to where he had a block punt literally go straight through his arms. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that to where the punt literally just went through his outstretched arms as he was trying to block it. I just have this feeling that we're going to see a special teams touchdown. I don't know if it's going to be on the block punt. I don't know if it's going to be Tavion Robinson in the return game, but I'm going to go ahead and call that. I'm going to look for a prop bet on FanDuel, and I'm probably going to put that in there just for fun, maybe a dollar, you know. Yeah. Well, low success rate, but I don't know. I've just got that feeling. And I thought for the most part we didn't talk about the special teams a whole lot. I mean, I thought um, Peter Moore looked pretty good back there as punter. Uh, you know, John Parker, Romo had the big uh, 48-yarder for his first field goal attempt. He missed, you know, a shorter one in 32 yards, so hopefully that gets cleaned up. But um, And we only really saw Tavion return one punt against UNC, and, you know, he nearly had his head decapitated. But, um, you know, that'll be something else I'm looking for, just to see how that special teams unit can uh, continue to progress throughout the season and hopefully get a little bit more action in, uh, in Week 2. Yeah, nope, totally agree, man. Um, and and like you said at the the top of the uh, the review here, we got to be goldfish. And and I think that given our history, um, especially recent history, that's going to be the case in a lot of the games we're playing. And it's going to be important to lay that foundation and start operating with that mindset uh, this week. And you know, hopefully, we're successful. So that'll lead us into our picks for this week. Uh, I mean, not to brag. Seven and one in week one, Tim. Boo. I mean, come on. Boo. It's coming off of my horrific performance last <laughs> season, I was uh, I was very happy with that. And you were respectable four and four. It's not too bad. I'll take it. Look, but, at least uh, I didn't you know, dig a hole early. No, so. it's not. I can only strive to be that good. So to to wrap up this summary here, who do you who do you got? Middle Tennessee. Virginia Tech, the line is 19 and a half for the Hokies. I'd imagine you're taking Virginia Tech to win the game. I am. I think they'll cover. We should cover. We should cover. I I, I don't know how I feel about this one because I, I do, I, for some reason, 17 points sticks in my head as the margin of victory. Um. You know what? I'm going to take uh, Virginia Tech cover the spread. Uh, I have trepidation about this, obviously. 17 points feels like the right margin of victory, but I'm riding high, baby. Um, go ahead, give me Virginia Tech covering the spread. Yeah, I think this game's going to be more around like 45-10 final. So I'm going to take Virginia Tech to, to cover as well. I'd be kind of disappointed with only a 17-point margin of victory. I mean, a win's a win, but I don't know if 17 points is going to get me super excited about the performance. Well, we'll we'll, we'll just see. They're going to play the game. So, Illinois at UVA. UVA is a nine and a half point favorite. Important game for the Hoos because they they really get started with conference play next week against North Carolina, and then they they reel off a few very important conference games. 
They're coming off a big 43-0 victory against Bill and Mary last week. 545 total yards, 206 on the ground. Their top two rushers had five carries. So a lot of guys in the mix. Armstrong went for 339 and two scores. You know, Illinois uh, started off the college football season in week zero with the win over Nebraska, but then they turn around and lose to the University of what well, was was it UTEP or was it Texas San Antonio last week? I think it was Texas San Antonio. I think it was UTSA. Yeah. Yeah, they lost at home, thirty-seven to thirty. Um, so it's really tough to figure out what kind of football team Illinois is. I mean, they're not expected to be very good this year. You know, they're down to uh, their second-string quarterback in uh, Sitkowski, who was the Rutgers transfer. But uh, I'm probably going to lean UVA. I think this is a tough line. I think UVA is going to win the game. I'm just not sure about the spread. But I'm going to go UVA minus 9.5. Yeah, I'm going to go Illinois beating the spread on that one just because of the run game and the focus on clock control. Didn't go so well uh, the second week, but in week zero – uh, against a Nebraska team that nobody can figure out and everyone feels bad for. Um, Bielema knows what he's going to do. He, he knows what he's trying to build there in Illinois. And, you know, limiting the points, obviously, is going to be key. Controlling time of possession with such a, a run-heavy offense. Um, I'm probably going to regret this when we look at uh, our records at the end of this week, but I will take Illinois to beat that spread. Pitt at Tennessee. Pitt's a minus three and a half point favorite on the road. Coming off a 51 7 win against UMass, which everybody beats UMass. Tennessee allowed Bowling Green, who, a bottom feeder FBS program, to stay in the game for basically an entire half. They did pull away in the second half. I'm going to lean Pitt in this one. I think uh, Pitt has just a lot more offensively, a much more experienced offense than, than Tennessee has. I'm just not a big fan of the uh, the quarterback for Tennessee, uh, Joe Milton, um, and uh, I think Pitt's D is uh, is pretty solid. So three and a half points on the road, Pitt doesn't get me super excited, especially against an SEC opponent. But uh, I I'm not super high on the Vols this year. Yeah, um, I'm not picking, taking Pitt going into Neyland Stadium and coming out uh, covering the spread under any circumstance, uh, but especially not when you consider the athletes that Tennessee has. I realize that has done nothing for them over the past five years. Uh, not a but thing. still, Pitt going into Neyland, it doesn't feel right. Vols uh, beat the spread. You think the Vols are going to win? Mm, I'm not going to say win. I could see him because this is it three and a half right now. Three and a half. I could see him losing by three. I'm not going to say they're going to win, but if if they won, it would not surprise me. Don't get me twisted. I mean that that would be the least surprising thing ever, which is why I'm comfortable saying they're going to beat the spread. Appalachian State at Miami. Miami is a minus eight and a half point favorite. Chase Bryce now leading the way for the Mountaineers. One thirty-three nineteen last week over East Carolina. It seems like the entire country has Miami on upset alert for this game. I personally don't think we can really take anything away from the Miami game last week. You know, the Mountaineers had five tackles for a loss, four sacks against East Carolina. So how that Miami offensive line holds up um, should play into this one. But Miami's a better football team. They've got far more talent, in my view. They've got a good leader at quarterback, Derek King. 
which I think is the X factor. And I think they get back on track this week at home. I think they take care of business. They win by double digits. Totally agree. I'm taking Miami to cover the spread here. I think they got a lot of pro- lot to prove after getting spanked uh, by Alabama, and I think they're going to be ready to go and ready to, uh, unfortunately for the Mountaineers, uh, really put up some numbers in the offensive side. So, uh, yeah, Miami covers that spread. Rutgers at Syracuse. Rutgers is a one-and-a-half-point favorite. I mean, this is going to be a barn burner. Both teams coming off of wins. Both teams projected to finish towards the bottom in their respective conferences. Rutgers obviously a Big Ten school now. But to me, it feels like Rutgers is moving in the right direction under Greg Schiano. They're coming off a 61-point outing against Temple. The game is on the road at the Carrier Dome. Will the Syracuse offense be able to do enough to compete? I kind of doubt it. I mean, if you look at last week, Tommy DeVito only had 92 yards passing against Ohio. For that reason alone, I just can't get behind Syracuse, although I liked what I saw out of the Syracuse defense last week. But I'm going to go Rutgers on this one. The The spread is basically a toss-up anyways, but I've, I've got to go Rutgers. Yeah, I understand why you would go Rutgers. I am going to go Syracuse in that one just because they impressed me that much after I expected so very little of Syracuse this year that it would only make sense that they start 2-0 and um, because that would fly in the face of my prediction for them as I think I said they'd win two or three games maybe all year. So yep. I could be proven wrong in week two, which would only uh, fit in with my worldview and the way things seem to happen when I pick them. So in order to reverse this mojo, I'm going to go ahead and and pick Syracuse in that matchup. One of the biggest games of the week, NC State at Mississippi State. Right now, NC State is a a two-and-a-half-point favorite on the road. Mike Leach in the air raid getting set to host the Wolfpack. Almost dropped their home opener to Louisiana Tech. Came back from a 34-14 deficit to win by one. Mississippi State considered to have a very good run defense. They meet a very good rush offense. This is a pretty big game for Dave Dorn. You know, it they're is. expected to win. They are the better football team. And this is one of those hurdles where NC State needs to get over it, and they've struggled to get over it in the past. But you should feel good about where you can go this year if you can prove that you can go into a place like Mississippi State and win. I personally just, I'm not sold on Mississippi State. I hear that they have a good run defense, but Louisiana Tech, week one, they're not a banger of a program. You almost lost that game. NC State shuts out USF 45 nothing or whatever the score was. I like NC State to win this game rather convincingly. Yeah, I do too. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe a two touchdown win feels right for NC State here. So obviously I'm going to take NC State to cover the spread. Really, really, really big game for Dave Doran, as I know they want to go undefeated into Clemson uh, in a away game in a stadium in an environment like Mississippi State's is never easy. Going up against an offense like Mike Leach's is never easy. Um, but I think NC State just has one of the deepest teams in college football this year. Uh, and I think that depth and that identity, um, they're so balanced on offense. They can run 
uh, 75% of the time and win the football game and rush for 300 yards, but they can also pass for 300 too with Devin Leary, depending on weaknesses and matchups. I like that kind of flexibility and versatility. So, yep, I'm going with NC State to beat the spread or to cover the spread in that regard. All right, and our ACC wildcard game of the week picks, there's really only two that we had to choose from. So you had BC at UMass, or UMass at BC, I think it was, which I think was a 37.5 point line. Right. And then you had Georgia State at UNC. UNC was a minus 25.5. This was kind of a toss-up for me. I think, Tim, 37.5 points is a lot. But I feel very confident BC can cover that against a school like UMass. So I'm going to go BC minus 37.5 over UMass. Yeah, I, I like that pick. I have the same one eyed up. Georgia State, you just never know. They're athletes on that team. Um, even though I'm fairly confident North Carolina is going to come out swinging on offense, bad taste in their mouth, and really put it to Georgia State, I just feel more confident in Boston College's ability to beat vaunted in-state rival UMass uh, and to do so by more than, than 37.5 points. So I expect Boston yeah. College to cover. UMass is just so bad, so bad. Yeah. Um, what is your what's your wild card game of the week? Any game? So you know me, I'm always looking around uh, for any sort of teams with history or, or rivalry games and uh, teams that used to be in the same conference. And Texas and Arkansas are going at it. Um, both teams that I think were disappointing week one. Uh, Arkansas really put the foot on the gas towards the end of the game, but we're in, in way too close a game with a bottom feeder opponent. Um, Texas didn't look too convincing in their first game. Both programs undefeated. I think Traylon Burks is going to be healthier uh, in this game, which is going to push it more towards Arkansas for me. Um, so right now, in regards to the line, i got to look that one up because I don't have it in front of me. I think it's minus six. I think it's, it's six and a half six. or six. I think you're right. Okay. Um, I'm seeing six and a half when I'm looking here. That okay. feels good to me uh, to take Arkansas to beat that spread. Um, so yeah, woo pig, woo pig suey. Yeah, I'm actually I'm gonna go Big Ten versus Big Twelve right here. Iowa at Iowa State. Ooh. Iowa's getting four and a half points. They've beaten Iowa State five years in a row. Matt Campbell's coming off a week when they beat. Northern Iowa 17 to 10 and he's just struggled over his time at Iowa State against Kirk Ferentz and the Iowa Hawkeyes I think it's going to be a low scoring game it's going to be a traditional kind of a Big Ten feel but I like Iowa to win outright so I'm obviously going to take Iowa at plus four and a half I just feel like that's a lot of points especially looking at Iowa and how they played week one yeah against Indiana they just blew blew the doors off them they did have two interception returns for touchdowns I don't really love either two quarterbacks for these teams I think it's going to be more of a kind of a ground and pound game but um, at the end of the day I think Iowa is gonna gonna come out on top like they always do and let's just say I love the battle for the Cyhawk trophy because they always play earlier in the season and it is a heated rivalry game and typically not so high scoring but it's good hard-nosed old-fashioned football and it's a lot of fun so tune in for that one i'm really excited about you know the annual cyhawk matchup um and i think you made the right pick on that one to say the least yeah 
Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, that's our show for this week, Tim. Any uh, any final thoughts, closing words, recipes that we should look at? Goldfish, baby. And if you're not watching Ted Lasso, please do yourself a favor. Subscribe yeah. to Apple TV. It's worth whatever yeah. you got to pay monthly to watch that show. Jason Sudeikis plays one of the most lovable characters in the history of any sort of media that has been put out or produced by this country uh, in the last 100 years. Bold statement, but the truth. Um, Pay Apple your money. You're going to want to see that. So go ahead, subscribe, watch Ted Lasso, and that's the show. Yeah, it's fantastic. I got through season one, so I couldn't get Apple TV to work on my Sony television, but then I remembered I had an Xbox, and so you can get Apple TV through that. Yeah, And uh, I went through Ted Lasso quickly in season one so i'm waiting to start season two it's gonna have to be a tuesday wednesday thing during the during the football season obviously but uh yeah fantastic show love it but uh that's our show for today thanks for listening again we're chowder and grits be sure to drop us a review tell your friends if you like the show leave us a review we're approaching our 100th episode which is hard to believe what a milestone it'd be great to have 100 reviews by our hundred episode, I think this is episode ninety-four ish. We should, Sounds right? I want a cake. Yeah. You bake a cake. Yeah. I'll bake a cake. We'll eat them during the podcast. I love. Them. Great idea. That's we'll, it. We'll bake a cake. We're full of them. But uh, yeah, appreciate you listening. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, uh, you know, Facebook, whatever. Um, we're out there conversating. We're gramming. We're twittering. We're tweeting. You know, whatever the. That's our show. Happy week to go Hokies, go ACC, and we'll talk to you guys next week. See ya.